Hello and welcome to Talking Tudors, a fortnightly podcast about the ever-fascinating Tudor dynasty. My name is Natalie Gruniger and I'll be your host and guide on this journey through 16th century England. Are you ready to step through the veil of time into the dazzling and dangerous world of the Tudor court? Without further ado, it's time to talk Tudors. everyone, welcome back to another episode of Talking Tudors. I'm your host, Natalie Gruniger. Thank you so much for joining me today. Before we dive into this week's episode, I'd like to introduce you to a Weekend at the Tudor Court, a two-day online event that's taking place on the weekend of the 21st and 22nd of October. Enjoy talks by seven leading Tudor history experts, all from the comfort of your home. Participants will have access to all the content for a full month after the event ends, so there's plenty of time to catch up if you're unable to watch any of the video lectures over the weekend. To learn more and to register your place, head to my website on thetudortrail.com. I do hope you'll consider joining me. As always, I'd also like to acknowledge and thank the generous listeners who continue to support Talking Tudors on Patreon and extend a heartfelt thank you to everyone who's taken the time to rate and review the show. If you love the podcast and you never miss an episode, I invite you to join the Talking Tudors Patreon family. Please visit patreon.com slash talkingtudors for more information. When you join the Talking Tudors family, you'll instantly unlock access to exclusive posts, including audio releases and videos. Patrons are also eligible to attend additional monthly live talks and to enter patron-only monthly giveaways. You can also support the podcast and share your love of Tudor history with the world by buying Talking Tudors merchandise. There are a number of designs and products available, including phone cases, mugs, notebooks and apparel. Check out all the products at talkingtudors.threadless.com. Now, on to today's episode. I'm thrilled to welcome Julian Humphreys to the show to talk about the Battle of Flodden. After graduating in history from Emmanuel College, Cambridge, Julian Humphreys joined the staff of London's National Army Museum, where he curated numerous exhibitions and was spokesperson to the media on all matters of British Army history. He moved on to organise English Heritage's programme of guided tours to historic sites and continues to lead battlefield walks for its members. Julian is a Fellow of the Royal Society of Arts and is a trustee of the Battlefields Trust, the UK charity dedicated to the preservation and interpretation of Britain's historic battlefields. He's the author of numerous books and articles on Britain's military history, most recently as a contributor to Historic Battlefields in 500 Walks, and as editor of the Battlefield Trust's special publication on the sieges and battles of the Barons' Wars. Let's dive straight into our conversation. Welcome to Talking Tudors, Julian. How are you? I'm very well, Natalie. Thanks for having me on. Yes, I've been looking forward to our conversation. So let's just start with you introducing yourself to our listeners and just telling us a little bit about you and your background. 
Well, hi then. My name is Julian Humphreys and uh, I am one of the trustees of the Battlefields Trust, which is the UK charity, which is dedicated to the preservation and promotion, really, of battlefields in Britain. So a good example of that is Flodden, which we're going to be talking about today. My background is that uh, I read history at Cambridge University and then I worked in museums for quite a long time before. Actually, I was I was employed by Tracy Borman, who I'm sure your, your listeners will be familiar with when she worked at English Heritage. And I put together their, their sort of tours and battlefield visits programme, which I still do today. So I'm doing that this weekend, for example. So I'm off to Flodden in a short while. Oh, how wonderful. Um, yes, we are here yeah. to talk about the the Battle of Flodden. So can you tell us a little bit about the events that actually led to this particular battle between England and Scotland? Yeah, I mean, there was a song once, wasn't there, called which had that line, war, what is it good for? Absolutely nothing. And, <laughs> you know, if you could have written that about any battle, in many ways, it's uh, it's that battle. And when you strip away, you know, any kind of national pride, national feeling about it, you know, it is very much a, a national tragedy. I guess all battles are, but this one perhaps more than any, because it was perhaps one of the more unnecessary battles that was that was fought uh, for both sides, really. And really, I would say the background to it is that James IV of Scotland, who was in many ways an admirable king, when you look at his, his reign, he did a lot to perhaps bring Scotland together. He promoted a lot of things that we would associate with the Renaissance. The printing press is a good example of that. Uh, but he was always in a, in, in a tricky situation because he had quite a difficult neighbour south of the border. Now, I'm talking there, of course, about, about Henry the eighth, the young Henry the eighth, who is very keen really to establish himself as a big player on the European uh, stage. But then so is James the fourth. And James the fourth's problem was that in the reign of Henry's predecessor, Henry the seventh, a treaty was um, was signed between Scotland and England, the Treaty of Perpetual Peace. Uh, and a rather hopeful name, isn't it? The Treaty of Perpetual Peace. With our hindsight, we think, well, what a stupid name for such a treaty, but it was never going to last. But that was the, the idea. And it was trying to, to stop those constant border conflicts that were going on between the two the two countries. You know, James IV, for example, had supported Perkin Warbeck. It's a good example of that. Uh, comes across the, the the border in the late 1490s and causes a lot of damage on the uh, on, on the border there on the English side. So a treaty was signed. It was backed by the papacy and it was underlined also by uh, James marrying uh, Margaret Tudor. So Henry's uh, sister. So therefore, um, you've got this treaty and the idea is it will put a stop to the warfare between England and, Sc and, and Scotland. But the problem was that, uh, that James IV also had uh, an alliance with the French, with Louis XII of France. And this is something that goes right back, really, this alliance between Scotland and France, right back, you know, to the, the, the 13th century. And it's known today as the old alliance. We call it the old, the old alliance. And it's what I would describe as a, a kind of special relationship, really. But like modern day politics and history shows you, when there's a special relationship, it invariably seems to work better for one part of the relationship than the other. And I'll just part that thought there. And we can think back about events over the last sort of 20 years and we can see how that played out for the UK, for example. And that was essentially a, a, a sort of a mutual support agreement. And so therefore, if France was attacked, Scotland would, uh, would would come in on their side. And they did it before they did it in the 14th century, um, at the time when Edward III was invading 
France, the Scots come in and it's a disaster for them. Uh, their king is captured at uh, the Battle of Neville's Cross. But there we are. So, so James IV of, of Scotland, at the beginning of the, of the 16th century, he's got these two alliances, these two treaties, which work OK until England goes to war with France which it does as part of what we often describe as the Italian wars. So it's this this period of the of the French trying to expand their interest, I suppose, into, into what we now think of as, as Italy. And you end up with the, the, the League of, of Combray. And um, it's an alliance, really, between virtually everybody apart from France, to be honest. You know, so you've got on in, in this war, you have the papacy who are coming under pressure from, from France. You have the empire, you have Spain, you have Venice. Uh, and you have England. And it suited Henry because, you know, Henry is in his early 20s and he has a very keen desire, I think, to gain a bit of glory, really. He's a new king. So how do you impress yourself upon your subjects? Well, you execute a few unpopular tax collectors and you go on with a victory, you know. In, in, and, and so he gathers together a, an army to support the League of Combray. And, and in 1513, he invades northern France and lays siege to a town called Terouanne. So there he's playing his part in the uh, in the war against uh, the French. Well, uh, the French, of course, therefore, they're looking for support. They haven't got a lot of support, actually, across across Europe. One or two Italian states support them. Navarre supports them. I think Ferrara supports them. Maybe Florence, but that's it. So where else are the, are the French going to get some support? Well, they're old allies. The, uh, the, the the Scots. And so Louis asks um, James, really, it's a demonstration he's asking for, really. Something to make sure that the English can't put all their effort into fighting the French. And so in uh, 1513, at the behest of, of Louis XII, James the Fourth of Scotland raises an almighty army, really. It's, uh, it's the biggest army ever to leave the border of Scotland, uh, as many as 40,000 men, which in those days was, was a huge amount. And uh, they cross the border, they, they cross the River Tweed, and they begin to attack the English border fortresses. Now, this isn't an invent. They're not thinking of marching down to London and conquering England. There's no that wasn't going to happen. You know, the the uh, the point of this was uh, was really to demonstrate their support, I suppose, for the French. And also at the same time, you know, places like Norham, which is a mighty castle overlooking the Tweed, Walter Scott called it the most dangerous place in England simply because it was no so near to Scotland. But if they could destroy those those fortifications, so Norham is the is is one, but there were many others. They're doing their bit for the French. They're gaining some kind of prestige, the, the Scots are, and also they're they're getting rid of some troublesome fortresses that in the future might be bases for the English or uh, places that could prevent the uh, the Scots from invading. So James does that, but of course that means he breaks the Treaty of Perpetual Peace. And therefore, he's excommunicated by the Pope. So it's quite a, a big spiritual risk that he's taking in, in many ways. But he goes ahead and, and does it. So that's James's situation. So that's why James is doing what he's doing. Right. And so so Henry's on the continent at the moment because he's fighting his own battles against the French. So we've got at home Catherine of Aragon left as regent, I believe. Do you want to tell us a little bit about her involvement? 
Yes. Well, but you're absolutely right. So so she's left, in essence, as regent of the country, um, as governor general of the, of the forces. And uh, it's interesting that uh, I'm just trying to get the exact dates on this, but it looks as though Henry appointed just about on their wedding anniversary, actually, right. uh, in, in June uh, 1513. Now, you know, she she's an immensely, in my opinion anyway, she, she is my favourite of all of, of Henry's wives. Uh, she's quite a remarkably resilient person. Of course, you think about her family background in Spain, you know, and uh, it's a fairly martial background, isn't it? So she's basically putting in control of the country. Um, as such, you know, she wields all the powers, really, that, that Henry would have, have wielded. So therefore, you know, she's overseeing many of the preparations that are connected with that uh, with that campaign. So that, so in other words, you know, she's issuing the warrants for the raising of troops, she's raising money, she's reporting back to Henry on what's going on. She's telling Henry to be careful. The whole country wants Henry to be careful because the last thing that the English wanted was Henry to die. Because who's the heir to the throne at that time? Well, it's Margaret. And if and Margaret, and if you get Margaret, who do you get with her? You get James IV of Scotland. So it's a it's a it's a tricky time, you know. It has to be handled with care. So she's a um. So she's there running running the country now. I I you know we like and quite rightly so now I think to make the point that that women in this period have a lot more agency than we used to to say. You know, it's not about men fight just men against men. You know, and 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 Margaret is a, is a good example of this. Very energetic. If people didn't come up with the goods that were required, she'd write to them. She threatens. For example, Gloucestershire, because they're a bit slow in raising troops, he writes to them. She writes a letter to Henry, which which says that she's busy making standards and banners. Now, I, this shouldn't make you think that that's all she did. It's not like she sat at home sewing while the blokes got on with the fighting. These are banners for her particular troops, you know. So this is uh, something that she's doing in the evening. It's not that that's all that she did. However, you know, she's not involved in the campaign per se. Now, there are, for example, modern works of fiction and films where you have her riding into battle in armour. She never got anywhere near uh, Scotland or the border where this battle was fought. The furthest she, she got was probably to Buckinghamshire. So she's hundreds of miles away from, from Flodden when this happens. And she's raising a, a, a force, an additional force. I'm never quite sure why she did this, uh, in, in my opinion, because uh, there was no way, for example, that, uh, that James IV was ever going to go south. Uh, because the way that the Scots raised their, their forces, they only owed the king. It's very feudal, really, 40 days service. So if you're operating with an army that's, that you've only got for just over a month, you're never going to be able to, to head south. All you can do is what James did. And also, the more troops that you raised, the more money you had to find. So, But anyway, she does raise a second force. And it's often said that she did a, a very... Peter Martyr, the historian of the period, said that she gave a, a, a very dramatic speech. There are echoes here, I think, of Elizabeth and her speech at Tilbury in many ways, you know. And, and rather like that, uh, you know, I, I, I think it's very much a piece of PR. Where she gave that speech is, is is uncertain, but she certainly didn't give the speech to the troops that fought at at, at Flodden because they were too far away. So, but she's keeping a lid on things. She's um she's running the country. People are reporting to her, you know, and uh, she is working closely with, amongst others, uh, Wolsey in running the, running the country because you know it's not just dealing with the Scots. You know, you've got a whole a whole country that has to be administered. And, and kept in line. So, you know, she she she's there in the background, really, I, I I would say, sort of pulling the strings. But when it comes to the actual campaign, it's the Howards uh, that are the people who 
we have to look to to see what actually happens. And this is such an important uh, period in the uh, the history of the of the Howard dynasty. Yes, that's the next thing I wanted to ask you is about when does this fighting actually take place? When does the battle happen? And who's leading each of the sides? That would be really great. And then maybe we can talk a little bit about the, the weapons used as well. Okay, so basically the, the Scottish army is led by the king. James IV has a very personal sense of, of leadership, which was, you know, it's a very medieval idea, really, uh, that, that that idea that the that the king should take the same risks as his subjects. So he, he's um, he's leading the Scottish uh, army, but the, it's a Scottish army from all over Scotland. So really, it's a, it's a statement of what James had achieved over the previous 20 years in in, in you know, uniting Scotland, if that's the right word, you know, under his rule. So you've got uh, an army that comes from all over Scotland, from the lowlands, from the borders there, to the highlands, to the Western Isles, and so on. So it's a, a really an expression of Scottish nationalism. I, I don't mean in the political sense of it today, but of, of Scotland being a, a sort of single state. So that's the, the, the Scottish army. We can talk about in a minute, you know, how they were equipped. Now, the English army is very different because it's the B team really, that's fighting at Flodden. It's the reserves. Not that the people in it would necessarily have seen it that way, but Henry goes to to, to France and he takes with him most of the nobles and most of the, of the, the forces from the south and the Midlands of England. They're going over with him. Now, if you were a noble at that time and you wanted to get preferment, you know, and do well at court and gain some rewards, you want to be in the eyes of the king. You want, to, you want to be there with the king. So everybody wanted to go on that campaign because this is their chance, isn't it? You've got a young king in his 20s. Now's your chance, you know, over in, in France to, to do your bit and uh, Henry will, will be impressed with you and then maybe you'll get some more offices, some more lands, some more titles, preferment at court. Everybody wants to go. But Henry does not take the Howards with him. Now, the Howards, have, have, of course, if you go back... 30 years, they're on the wrong side at, at Bosworth. So John Howard, Duke of Norfolk, is Richard III's, one of his greatest supporters, and he pays uh, with his life at Bosworth at that. And his son, Thomas Howard, who was Earl of Surrey, which was the uh, the title of the heir to the Dukedom of, of Norfolk, is also at that battle, um, is wounded and captured. And that Thomas Howard, um, Earl of Surrey, by the time we come to 1513, you know, he is getting quite elderly. There's some, you know, he's, he's, he's pushing 70, in fact. But he was really wanted to go on the campaign to, to France because it was part of that. He could see it as part of that re rehabilitation of the Howard family. It's something that the Tudors, of course, did. It's not unique to them, but the fourth would do the same thing, you know, And but that was that you enabled people to regain their their, their standing by royal service. So they, the, the Howard's are very keen to do this. But then it's announced by Henry that they're going to be left behind and they're going to guard the Scottish border. Well, you know, they've done this before. So so uh, Thomas Howard, Earl of Surrey, you know, he'd, he'd operated in the borders. He didn't know the area, but he's left to guard the border. One late historian, rather charmingly put, it might have been Francis Bacon, I can't remember. He said, when Henry left, he forgot not the old pranks of the Scots, which is ever to invade the kingdom when the king is out. And I love that, you know. So Henry is, is aware of, of, of what's going on, you know. So from July of 1513, you know, the Earl of Surrey is raising troops. He's not pleased about it. You know, he can't say this to the to the king, but, you know, he, he he's really angry because he wanted to go to uh, to France. And in, instead of which, he's being sent to what, on the political stage, is a backwater, you know. But nevertheless, you know, the king demands, so you have to, to carry it out. And he starts to raise troops 
And, uh, you know, during that summer, he's gathering together a force, but it's a very northern force. Most of the troops in the army, nearly all of them, are from north of the Trent, the traditional dividing line between the the north and the south of England. So you've got a lot of troops uh, from Yorkshire, Lancashire, Westmoreland, Durham, Northumberland, Cheshire. So it's it's those areas. And uh, it's very much, a, a, you know, a family effort, really, because you've got the Earl of Surrey, you've got um, his son, Thomas Howard, and his other son, Ed- Edmund Howard. And initially, and additionally, you've got troops uh, from the Stanleys. Now, this is uh, quite interesting, because it was the Stanleys, of course, who had been instrumental in, one would argue, in winning the Battle of Bosworth, which saw the death of the Earl of Surrey's father and for the temporary decline in influence of the of the Howards. So consequently, you've got this army, which is Howard Stanley. And one wonders, you know, when they met up exactly, you know, what, what they thought about this. I think they, um, they, they come together because they had to, you know, in that way. And also quite a lot of the borderers. Now, the borderers were families, you know, like the, the, the Dakers, the Herons, the Grahams, the Armstrongs the Milburns, the Charltons. These names still exist today in the in the, in the north of England. And they quite often they were on both sides of the border, the, these families. But their loyalty was very much to themselves, really, uh, rather than to the to the kingdom. But, you know, if you've got a Scottish army that's invading, they're likely to turn out for you under their own terms. And so Lord Dacre, an earlier Dacre, had been killed at Taunton fighting for the Lancastrians. Lord Dacre gathers together a lot of these sort of border families who were pretty used to raiding and, and, and they had a lot of their own quarrels with people across the border. So this English army is gathered and it, and it heads north, but it never reaches the size of the Scottish army. Uh, the, Scot- you know, the, the most that, that Howard seems to have managed to get together was 26,000. But then at that time, that was a, that was a huge force. It's, it's a big force. It's nearly double, for example, what Henry V took with him on the Agincourt campaign. So, you know, it's a, it's a substantial force and it's an expensive force, but that is sent north to, to counter what James IV is, is doing. Okay, so the battle is actually on the 9th of September, is that right, Julian? Yes, the battle's fought on the 9th of September. Now, maybe this is a time to, to, to talk a little bit about what the two armies were like, because yes. they were very, very different in their characteristic and composition, because although the Scottish army was raised really in... in in the old medieval feudal way that you know you owed service to your your lord and therefore you you, you turned out and you didn't get paid yet to just sort of show up for the Scottish army the army itself is very renaissance in it in its character by which I mean that the weapons that it had were like the most up-to-date in Europe so the first example of this is that James spent a lot of money on artillery and um, he had a chap called Borthwick who charmingly in the accounts is described as the king's master melter forging these guns. And James put together a formidable siege train of guns, great big heavy things. Now, if you go to Edinburgh Castle today, there's there's, there's one in there called Mons Meg, which is a great big thing. They like to call these guns Meg, but Mons, because, you know, it's coming from the, from the low countries, huge thing. And the Scots used to trundle it out whenever there was some trouble on, on the border. But they didn't take that because they had more up-to-date bronze guns, mighty guns, these things. But And so James had a, a very good artillery train. And these guns were more than a match for any of the castles along the border. So consequently, when he crossed the border, places like Norham, which had been extensively fortified by the English, or Walcott, 
Castle or Ford or Eatle Castle. They stood no chance against these guns. And um, Norham was battered into submission in a, in a, in a matter of days by this, this siege train. So things are, you know, in that sense, the, uh, the, the campaign's going very well for the Scots. So in late August, early September, James is busying himself along the border, destroying the English fortifications. But the rest of his army is, is equipped with something absolutely new. And that was the pike. Now, the Scots had won battles like Bannockburn with the spear. Now, the spear is maybe 10 foot long, you know, and, there, and there's this traditional Scottish way of fighting, which was called a shieldron. And it was like a, a hedgehog of, of souls. They all get together with these spears out, and that's how they, they fought. But the weapon that was beginning to dominate on the continent was the pike, 18 feet tall. So it was, you know, and it was very fitting in a way when you think about the Renaissance, because it's the old classical weapon that the Greek hoplites, for example, were, were fighting with. So this great long pike, and uh, the idea was that everybody got together with them, and then they advanced together with these pikes down, and it was like an unstoppable steamroller with all of these pikes sticking out in, in, in front. The only trouble was that that relied upon two things. One was good training. You had to be very well trained. Now, the Swiss, for example, had won a series of victories with this weapon in the previous couple of decades or three decades, in fact. But they were very well trained. They practiced with it. There was very strict discipline, etc. It was not a weapon for individual gung-ho charge into battle etc you steady you go in together in in that way so it had to be well trained because if you lost um, formation with the pike it's a, it's not a very good weapon to fight with on a hand-to-hand -hand basis because it's so long if somebody is opposite to you and they can get underneath the pike head it's useless you can't use it so it had to you had to be well trained and really the the scots had got this new weapon the french sent over a chap called the chevalier d'orsi and he came over and he started to, the, the process of training. And they brought over the, the sort of troops that you, you needed to help the pikemen, crossbowmen, arquebusiers, swordsmen, who was to sort of clear the way for this pike block to advance. But the, Scot, the, the Scots had not really got, to use, got used to using it. So I always think about this army. It's like some guy that has bought a set of golf clubs but doesn't really know how to play golf. It's got the latest kit but they're not that well experienced with it. So you've got a, a Scottish army, which has got these massive guns and these, these pikes. Now, they had, uh, not everybody had the pikes. They, they had lightly armed Highlanders coming from the, the west of, of Scotland as well. But the, the main weapon was the pike. So that's the Scottish army. So they're there. They've got these um, pikes. The English army, on the other hand, was if it had turned up at Bosworth or at Towton, or any of those battles, it would have been instantly recognisable. It was the traditional English army of bows and bills. So long bows and bills, which are sort of hedging tools, really. So they're kind of spiked things that you put on the end of a pole. They're about six foot, eight foot long. And you use them in hand-to-hand -hand combat. And yeah, they're ideal for the people that were carrying them because those people, many of them were agricultural labourers. And what did they do on a daily basis? Well, they threshed and they chopped and they... You know, they did all those things. So they were used to using that kind of weapon. Um, and then the English had guns, but they didn't have heavy guns because they'd all gone off with Henry VIII. So they had light guns. So not a kind of gun that could knock down a castle wall, but maybe could be quite useful on a, on, on a battlefield. So two very different armies, really. The question would be, you know, would there be a battle? You know, was there to be a battle? And there was intense negotiation and manoeuvring before that battle was actually fought. James actually didn't need to fight a battle because he'd achieved what he wanted to achieve, which was the destruction of the English border fortresses. He had got 
a large lot of English troops to be diverted from the south of England. And he kept his word with the King of France. So therefore, he didn't really need to fight a battle. For the English, for Howard, they needed to fight a battle, partly because I think the Howards needed a victory themselves because of their position at court, that this could give them the chance to be to sort of advance somewhat. But secondly, because you couldn't keep your army together for a long time. It's now coming to, to harvest time. And, you know, you're, you're going to have to disband your army because you just can't afford to keep it going. So then all these English chaps will then go home again. The Scots can be over the border and then the next year they can just uh, attack again. So there was great efforts by the by the English to create a battle. And it's re- remarkable, really. It's still very chivalrous in a funny sort of way. They, they, they kind of challenge each other to battle. And in the end, James agrees to fight Howard on the 9th of September. And he offers battle. So therefore... He He's accepted the, the battle and the, the English army is arriving up on the on the border and uh, they, they come up through a place called Wooler into a plain which is called Millfield and they camp there and they get their army out. And then they come from aware of the Scots and they find that the Scots have entrenched themselves on the top of an almighty hill which is called Flodden Edge. They dug themselves in up there. It's got guns there. They've got all their pikemen. And the English realised that any attempt to attack there will be a disaster because they'll struggle up the hill. They'll be blown to pieces by the Scottish cannons. And then these pikemen will drive them off the battlefield. So Surrey sends a, a, a letter to James and said, well, what? come down and fight fair. Come down off that hill and, and fight fair. And of course, James is having none of it. But he, he said no. You know, and he sends a letter back saying, I'm a king. And I will fight where I want, not at the behest of an earl like you. So now Howard's in a very difficult position because what does he do? He wants to fight a battle, but not on those terms. For the Scots, they can say, well, we offered to fight. We offered to fight. The, the English didn't fight. Done our bit. And then they can go back over the border. Job done. The irony is that had the, the Scots come down off that hill and fought on the level ground at, at Millfield, near Millfield, they might have won. We'll come on to that in a minute. So what can the English do to create a, a conflict, a battle? It's getting worse for them because they've run out of beer. Right. It sounds funny, but you know, of course, that you know you, you, you can't be drinking from the streams there because you've got, think of Glastonbury or something like that. You know, you've got 26,000 men all going to the loo. It's all going down into the stream. The longer the army is together, the more chance there is that they'll get dysentery and they'll, they'll get sick. So it needs to think of some way of, of making the, 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 the Scots fight. So what the English do is that they want a huge sort of right hook with the army and they put themselves between James's army and Scotland. So they've cut James off from Scotland. Well, of course, also it means that James is is between Howard and London, but it's a hell of a long way down to London and they haven't got time to go down there. So James has to react to this. He can't allow this to happen because Edinburgh is not that far away. And you can't have an English army between him and, and, and his capital. So he has to leave that high ground, turn the army round and react to what the English have done. So you have a strange situation at, at Flodden where the English are facing south and the Scots are facing north, where you think it would be the other way around. But the Scots still managed to occupy quite a strong position. It's not as strong as Great Flodden Edge where they were, but Brankston Hill where they go. If you go there today, it really dominates the surrounding area. And the Scottish army deploys up on the top of that hill. And then it's a question about how the English will deal with that. And so what actually happens on the day? Could you sort of talk us through the main events? And of course, what is the outcome? Well, the the battle itself, the, the, the Scots have got a plan, it seems. And the plan is that they will bombard the English who are on lower ground and then maybe provoke the English into an attack 
And then they'll send these great blocks of pikemen. There were four, maybe five of these blocks, maybe, you know, six, seven thousand people in these mighty blocks of pikemen. And they'll sweep them off the battlefield. That's the plan. That's their, their plan. The English, uh, really, it, it's tricky for the English because, you know, they, they don't occupy such good, such good ground. But what the Scots didn't know was that between where the English were and the Scots up on their high ground, at the foot of that hill, there was a great expanse of boggy ground. And it's still, if you go there today, it can still get very wet there today, even though they've tried to sort of drain it. So the battle begins with an exchange of artillery. So these great big Scottish guns that I mentioned, you can imagine the, the chaps heaving them into position and then loading them very slowly. And then they shoot off a great big cannonball and it misses. And then you've got like another five minutes where you have to gradually sort of load them again. Meanwhile, the English, you've only got little guns. They're much nippier and much nimbler and they can adjust the aim and they can get off this sort of rate of fire. And so the Scots are standing on the top of the hill and they're suffering quite heavy casualties from the English guns. So in, instead of the, the Scots remaining on, the, on the, the defensive on the top of the hill, they decide they're going to attack. So these great blocks of pikemen start lumbering down the hill towards the outnumbered English. Interesting thing, where is James IV? He announces he's going to lead from the front. Chivalric, yes, but probably not. The rest of his nobles, they were somewhat alarmed about this because they said, if you go in, in the front, you're no more than anybody else. Whereas if you're to the rear, you know, you can uh, you can direct things a little bit better. And also what happens if you get killed? And, uh, you know, we, we, we often hear people say about Henry Tudor at the Battle of Bosworth, you know, being to the rear, protected by his bodyguard. If you read the writers at the time, people like, Christine de Pizan, the woman writer who, you know, is based very much on Vegetius, the Roman writer, and all of the writers at the time, they say there's no glory in unnecessarily risking your life if you're a king. You know, you, you, you've, got to, you've got to think about the bigger picture. And, uh, and so therefore, don't go in the front, front rank. It's not the place to go. But James says, you know, it's, it's, it's quite admirable in a way. He says, well, I expect these, my, my countrymen to follow me. I should share their risks. So they say, but that means, of course, that all the other Scottish nobles have to go in the front ranks because they can't let their king there. So you've got all of these nobles, bishops, goodness knows what, in the front rank. And the Scots start lumbering down the, the hill. And essentially, although on one side of the battlefield, they're, they're, they're relatively successful, their troops who are borderers under Earls Hume and Huntley, they get a bit distracted by trying to capture important prisoners, plundering, etc. And they kind of lose momentum. And the English are able to stabilise the situation with their, um, with their own borderers, mounted borderers, and they kind of stop them. Meanwhile, the rest of the Scottish army is going down the hill. And as they go down the hill, their lack of training begins to tell and they begin to fall apart. And so instead of having these solid blocks, they're becoming a little bit sort of disorganised. And when they get to the bottom of the hill, there's this blooming swamp. So you can imagine, can't you, these chaps with these great pipes are getting to it. Then they stop. But all the other people behind are ploughing on. A bit like on the tube in London when somebody stops at the top of the escalator. You know, everybody passes into them. So the Scottish army loses all its momentum. And in those circumstances, those bills that I mentioned um, are really the little more than an encumbrance. And the handier, the, the, the pikes rather, the Scots right, yeah. have got are, are more of a, a, an encumbrance. And the English billmen are able to get amongst them and they hack them to pieces. Right, absolutely hack them to pieces. And the final blow for the Scots is that the last English division to arrive on the battlefield is under the Stanleys. There's a, a, a late arrival of the Stanleys. It's a <laughs> bit of a trope. You know, like, yeah. I mean, I always think that, that the thing about the, the Stanleys is that they their, their timing is brilliant. I, that's how I see it. They're, I think that, that militarily their timing is brilliant. And they are at this battle and they sneak up 
the Scottish uh, hill because there are some sort of hidden valleys that lead to the top and they emerge behind the Scottish army where the people that are opposed to them are lightly armed Highlanders and they unleash a volley of arrows and then they charge through them and by then the Scots are caught between the main English army and the Stanleys and they're cut to pieces and it's at that time that, that James IV is cut down and killed and you know nobody really at the time had a completely clear idea of what happened and it was darkness that brought an end to the, the battle but you know when the next day on the on the 10th uh, you know the, the sun rose the English realised what a victory they'd won you know it was a horrendous slaughter perhaps minimum number of killed which which, which is on the English side 1500 on the Scottish side 5000 now this is is a huge number of, of people really you know and you, you start thinking that each of those people that was killed have got a family you know they've got wives children etc so you know we all know that we, if we lose somebody in our family the, the kind of impact it has on all of us we'll multiply that 5,000 times and it gives you an idea about what um, it did uh, and to make matters worse for Scotland you know the king is killed and also a, a number of his uh, leading nobles because they had to fight in the front rank so, you know, people like Montrose, Bothwell, Lennox, Argyle, all the sort of leading nobles of the country are killed. And so as a result, Scotland has a, a period of sort of instability, I suppose you, you, you would call it, after that, which, you, you know, I, I, I don't think they ever get over it, to be honest. Now, they're not conquered in any way. The English don't go and march on, on, on Edinburgh, for example. They don't do that at all. The, the Scots were, were worried that they might. And actually, Margaret Tudor, what a tricky situation for her, really, because she's English. And she, in effect, is for the immediate aftermath of, of Vlogden. She's running Scotland. Her husband's been killed. You know, her, her brother's army is, is, is on the border. But, you know, she, she does it. And um, if you go around Edinburgh today, you see in, in some parts of the old town, between houses, it says there's a bit of wall. It says Flodden Wall. I still see it around around Edinburgh today, around sort of Greyfriars and that area. And it was emergency defences that were built in case the English marched up onto Edinburgh. But they were never going to do that. That wasn't the English intention. So they won this victory. But you kind of feel that if, if James had avoided fighting, or even if, in fact, he'd he'd not been killed at, at Flodden and he'd got back across the border, he could at least have said, well, I've destroyed the English fortifications. I've kept my word with the uh, with the French. But of course, his death at Flodden and, and the death of so many of his nobles and his, his soldiers turned it into a catastrophe, really, for the, uh, the Scots. Not a catastrophe for the Howards, however. So down in the south of England, Catherine of Aragon hears the news about the battle and she is triumphant. You know, she would have fought, I think, had it come to it, but it was never going to happen. But she, you know, she she was quite a bellicose person, in fact. You know, she's, what, about 27 at the time. And she's fantastic what, what she hears, you know. So she writes to, uh, to Henry and she sends James's bloodstained tunic over to see Henry. And she actually says, I would have sent you his body but the sensibilities of my English subjects wouldn't won't stand for it. So it gives you an idea what she would have been like, you know, in, in that way. So Henry has won a fairly insignificant victory at Teruan. It's called the Battle of the Spurs because when it was going against the uh, the French, they rode off. So they it, it, he won this victory, but compared to Flodden, it was nothing. But, you know, he had to congratulate the Howards and uh, he did so. And uh, the first thing that the Howards get is they get their dukedom back. So that from going from, from the Earl of Surrey, the, he gets his dukedom back, which had been taken away after Bosworth, and he becomes the Duke of Norfolk. And with that is given 
additional lands and offices. And the other thing that the that the Howards get is an augmentation to their coat of arms. So the Howard coat of arms is like a, a red shield with a, a white bend on it with some crosses on it. That was the original Howard coat of arms. If you look at it today, after Flodden, it's got this additional bit that they were given after the battle. And it's the um, a little shield with the Lion of Scotland on it, the red lion on a yellow background. But if you look closely, it's got an arrow sticking out of it. And that's there even today, you know, on the on the Duke of Norfolk's coat of arms. And of course, for the Howards, this is a major moment in their rehabilitation. And, you know, you think about it, you know, had the Howards lost at Flodden, Maybe now Anne Boleyn, yeah. you know, Catherine Howard. Well, they would have been there, but they wouldn't have had that that influence, you know. So, uh, for that, it's a huge triumph for the for the Howard family. Tell us a little bit about what the relations between England and Scotland are after this. You've already pointed out Margaret Tudor, Henry's sister, is there in Scotland. You know, she was the wife to to James. So, how does how do things play out after that? In terms of the relationship, I suppose between uh, England and Scotland. It's always going to be tricky. The English are, are, are not seeking ever to conquer. You know, they've given up on the idea of trying to conquer Scotland, but you try and do it through diplomacy. And so through the next 50, 60, 70 years, Scotland is torn apart by factionalism, really. You know, initially it's noble ambitions. So you've got different um, people. You've got, you know, uh, the Hume, you've got Hume, you've got Albany and Douglas and so on and so on, who are all sort of jockeying for position in Scotland. And the and the English effort really is about making sure that it's a pro-English party that's operating in, in, in Scotland. And in fact, Henry, you know, he sponsors people. He actually sends them sends them money to be pro-English. As time goes on, that gets complicated by the Reformation. So that by the time you get to the 50s, 60s, you've got that in the mix, of course. And that then leads to the exile of, of Mary, Queen of Scots. But uh, so really what the English are trying to do is, is, is first of all, to get a, a pro-Scottish administration and then maybe to try and force a marriage and you get an outbreak of fighting you know in the in the in the 1540s 1550s which we call the rough wooing which is about the English trying to get an advantageous marriage you know Mary Queen of Scots to marry an an English uh, uh, person with the English king um and not a French person but of course that doesn't work it doesn't happen but that's the thing so what the English are trying to do through that period I think is is that they're just trying to ensure that whoever's in power in Scotland is pro pro English but you know so so Fodden it, it, it achieves very little really it, it, it is one of the more it's, it's decisive if you were there if you see what I mean if you were yes. one of those 5,000 that was killed or one of the 1,500 English uh, but really it, it had very little strategic importance that the, the Scots by the next year had an army up together again but a terrible price was paid on that day you know and uh, if uh, for James IV uh, it, it's strange that I always am at Flodden on the anniversary and the night before the battle a lot of the Scottish lowland lowlanders or represented they go to Flodden and they toast James IV I wouldn't be toasting him. That's the last thing that I would be doing. I would be toasting those poor individuals that lost their lives because of the, you know, the ambitions of of, of men like like James and Henry. And Henry kind of, I think, kind of goaded James in a way. He always treated him as a as as an inferior. And so I guess that when it came to choosing, James was perhaps more likely to support the French than. Than, than be seen as a as a sort of underling of Henry, but you know it's it, it's the it's these princes, isn't it, that make the foreign policy, and it's then the ordinary people that that pay the price, and no more so than at Flodden. Yes, that's absolutely true. And you you mentioned earlier that you run some tours, some battlefield tours, and that you're there on the anniversary. Can you tell us a little bit about what there is left to see in relation to the battle? I think that if you're going to understand a uh, a battle, 
in, in the Middle Ages or even later, you need to walk the ground. And Flodden is remarkably unchanged. So what you can see when you go you go to Flodden is, you know, the lot, you, you go up onto the hill where the Scots deployed and you look down and you realise what such a strong position it is. Walk down the hill and you begin to realise how difficult it must have been carrying a great big pike, you know, in a great load of people all around you. Get to the bottom of the hill and you get to this sort of slightly boggy ground with a stream through it. And then you're looking up a slight incline to where the English are. And you would have understood just how tricky that must have been to try and uh, negotiate. So the, the the actual ground gives you a real understanding of what, what it was like. It's a very, very evocative place, Flodden, with a, a, a kind of bleak cross up on the hill. And, and it's it's hard not to be moved when you go there, I think. But also the castles are still there. So Norham, uh, which the Scots battered down, you can go there and look at it. It was re-fortified afterwards. Um, Etel. Etel was where all the Scottish guns were kept after the after the battle. Ironically, the, the owners of, the, of it were the manors that later the Dukes of, of Rutland, but they weren't there. Uh, and they had a constable there. And when he saw the Scottish guns, he thought, well, our castle won't stand a chance. So he surrendered it. And so it didn't get damaged. But it did get damaged because the English decided to keep all of the captured Scottish guns at Etal. And in order to do this, they had to knock down half of the keep to get the guns in. And um, you can still see that today. But there are other things that you, you can see. There's an amazing bridge called Twizel Bridge which both armies used during the, the campaign. It was built in 1511. And at the time, it's the middle of nowhere, this bridge now, and it crosses the River Till. But it's it, at the time, it was the longest single-span bridge in Europe. Quite extraordinary, this bridge. You just go along a, a B-Rex, and suddenly there's this bridge next to you, a huge bridge. So, you know, you can really follow the campaign round, but I don't think of it, I can't think of any other battle, really, where you get such an understanding of what it must have been like or at least the sort of tactical side of what it was like, that the, the Flodden, you know, it, it's well-preserved and it, and it's a long way from anywhere, really, but in terms of where it is, but it's well worth visiting. Yes, I've visited a number of battlefields, but I haven't actually visited Flodden, so I would like to do that in the future. And I have one more question for you, Julian. You've been so generous with your time and expertise. I wonder what you think is one of the biggest misconceptions or myths about the Battle of Flodden. Well, there are two. The biggest misconception is that it's in Scotland and so many people think it's in Scotland and they, they because they don't know the background to it, they see it as perhaps another example of English aggression towards Scotland, which, OK, diplomatically, there was, a you know, Henry VIII was aggressive, but not really. You know, it, it, it isn't. It was a Scottish invasion. That's the first one. And I think the other one is that there's a very famous song called The Flowers of the Forest. Now, when the Scots play England at any kind of sport, they always sing Flower of Scotland. And it's all about that banner burn. I just think, can you imagine if the English sang a song about flogging before they, they'd be held to pay, you know, but they, they, they do. But there's also a song called Flowers of the Forest. And the Flowers of the Forest are the, the Scottish people that were killed in, in the battle. And it's a, a very old Scottish folk song. But there's a line in it which says, the English by guile for once won the day. But that was very much not the case at, at, at Flodden. It wasn't a, a sneaky English win over, you know, as part of an invasion. It was a hard-fought battle where the, the English were, were outnumbered. But you kind of feel that the Scots didn't need to fight that day. So the, the biggest misconception, though, is that it's actually in England. It, it, it's not in Scotland, as many people think. Now, this has just been such a fascinating discussion, and, and thank you so much. There is one more thing we do at the end of episodes of Talking to You. There's a little bit more lighthearted than what we've been yeah. discussing so what far. What a relief after all that misery, <laughs> yes. you know, yes. Exactly. And it's I just, I just call it 10 to go. So just 10 
10 questions to get to know you a little bit better. So the first one, what is another historic site that you enjoy visiting? Cambridge. Lovely. Cambridge, uh, we think about Cambridge in terms of its um, it, its university, rightly so. But the number of Tudor buildings that are in Cambridge are quite extraordinary. You know, you, you, you take Christ College, St John's College, both founded by Lady Margaret Beaufort. They're like mini Hampton Courts, really, with the gatehouses and the brick. You've got um, King's College Chapel, you know, a huge statement in stone of the power of the Tudors. You know, you've got Queen's College you know, again, from the from the early, early Tudor period, you've got Renee, you've got later colleges. So, you know, to, to, uh, there's nowhere else, I think, in, in, in England where there are quite so many splendid uh, buildings of, of that kind, you know. And if you like Hampton Court, you know, you've got to go to Cambridge, really, because the, the, the buildings are, are phenomenal, really. They sure are. And what about a new skill that you might like to learn? I'd like to be a better swimmer. Yeah. Um, I, I'll come at it late in life a bit on that, but uh, I'm, I'm a feeble swimmer, and uh, that's the that's the skill. That's Other than that, actually, it's it's to improve my Latin, and uh, I did it at, I did it at, uh, at college and university, but um, it takes me ages to translate a, a Latin document from from that period. And I, I know the the nouns and the verbs, but you know the conjugations and the declensions and what have you. I'd love to so that I'm not relying on other people's translations yes. anymore. So swimming in Latin. Swimming in Latin, I like it. I like yeah. it. And what about uh, the last book that you read or one that you're currently reading? Well, do you have a to-be-read pile, uh, the TBR pile? Yes. yes. Well, I have several of those. But I also have my TBF file, which is my my, my to-be-finished. Uh, yes. okay. And that's even higher, you know. Um, so I'm afraid the last thing that, that well, actually, the thing I'm reading at the moment is it's terribly nerdy, but your um, listeners won't mind. think it that way. And it's um it's the border papers right. yeah so this is volume one and it's 756 pages i've got volume two and basically it's it's the extract from the calendar of state papers domestic relating to scotland and the reason for that is i'm very interested in the border reavers and the raids that they carried out because if you go up to the scottish border the farmers that are mentioned in the border papers are still there and it's an incredible thing that you go down and they say you know the armstrongs launched this raid in 1580 and they went to this farm and that farm and that farm and they're still there and, and so I'm trying to sort of track, do a track of on the Reaver Trail. You see, that's right. It. I love it. All right. Yeah. And what do you like to do to relax and unwind? Well, I don't know whether it's, it's relaxing or, or not, but I like football. I like football too. <laughs> so um, I follow Southampton Football Club, but uh, quite passionately, as did my dad. And so does my son. But I don't think it's necessarily uh, a relaxing and unwinding. Yes, I was going to, it's probably not too relaxing, is it? No, it's stressful <laughs> and tense. And uh, I, I, I'm obviously walking. Love to love to walk around a, a lot. Had a good time up at Hadrian's Wall last, last week. But mainly football, I'm afraid. It's, uh, it's okay. Flodden football. There we are. Flodden football, <laughs> that sounds good. Do you have any pets? Yes, I have Minty the cat. Who I don't know where she is at the moment, but uh, I'm, I'm many cats are like this. She waits until I'm going to start writing, and then she will settle down on the keyboard. But, yeah, you know she, what I mean? She's, I know what you mean. She didn't interrupt yeah. our conversation though, so she's been. No, no, she behind. did. Well, I've, I've locked her out. She would have done. You <laughs> oh, know. She would. Um, so I have a, I have Vinci the cat, who's a, a a great a great pal, really. And what is a uh, a travel destination? Maybe outside of England, if if you've got one that you enjoy. I love France, particularly, I guess, Normandy. Um, but it, it may well be because my, um, my my grandmother was French and my dad was born in Monte Carlo, which is rather exciting, isn't it? That is you know. exciting. Uh, yeah, he, he was half French, half English, and uh, he came back because of the Second World War. 
So, you know, we're refugees. We're a family of refugees, actually. Um, and uh, so I think France is in my blood, but I'm particularly interested in Normandy, because I like the food, but cider and cheese and, and what have you. But, you know, you've got all of those links with um, William the Conqueror there, but also D-Day. And that's another, th- another thing that I'm, that I'm quite interested in. So I love to go to, to France in particular. Well, you're not very far, to... is it? But... No, no, it's not far for you. It's yeah. far for me. But... <laughs> and Perth, of course, Perth, Australia. But that's because I have family there. Rot nest. Lovely. Yeah, so I like, I like to go to Rotto. If right. I get over there. And you can do the direct flight now, London, Perth. That sounds good. Oh, yeah, yeah. And so you reminded me of another question when you mentioned about D-Day. So what other periods of history do you feel drawn to apart from kind of medieval and Tudor? Well, I, my career is in ruins, really. So consequently, castles are very much my my thing, whatever period of, of, of history, yeah. But um, I guess it, it's blokey, really, but anything that involves um, military history is is very much my thing. I mean, I worked for, for many years at the National Army Museum in London, so I guess that would be would be the case. But um, I love religious architecture as well, you know, cathedrals in, in, in particular. Gothic architecture is a great love of mine, whether it's the medieval Gothic or the Gothic revival of people like Putin, you know, in the in the later 19th century. I have a great sense of place, don't you? I I, I think that, that so often, you you know, Flodden's an example where the only thing that separates you from those people is time. Exactly. But the place is there and to stand on the spot where all of these remarkable things happened. I mean, I, I still, even, even now, I, I've find that quite a moving and thrilling thing to be honest absolutely i completely agree with you so do you have a favorite 16th century artwork by any chance yeah um it's the sculpture in king's college chapel in cambridge i alluded to it a little earlier there i always say about king's college you know started by henry the sixth sort of finished by henry the seventh furnished by henry the eighth but you know that one end is henry the sixth and it's very plain but the other end is finished by the tudors and it's a wash with their heraldry and architecture so you've got things like both at grey hands and both at portcullises but the it could easily be i think well i, I think of it as, a, as an entity really but it could so easily be a bit repetitive you know here's another coat of arms and here's another <laughs> but all of the grey hands for example are looking in different directions so it gives it this sort of movement. And if you look at the portcullises, so they've got these carved stone portcullises, you know, badge of the Beauforts and the Tudors. If you look carefully, they've got little rivets on them. And each portcullis has got different rivets. So yeah. some of them have got like little lion's heads on them. Others have got like flowers. And so, you know, I just love to look at that. I mean, I could go on then about the stained glass in, in, in King's Cottage. Uh, but, you know, that 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 carving, I, I just think it's it, it's superb. And it says an awful lot about, about the Tudors as well, doesn't it? Sure does. And I have one more question for you. Is there a historical mystery that you would like to solve or you want the answer to? I suppose it's not so much a mystery, but I, there's one or two people I'd like to know what they were they were actually like. You know, so I'm not, you know, princes in the tower world high on my list of, of, of concerns really you know or, or what have you but I, that, there are one or two characters that I'd love to uh, Henry V in particular um, I get this feeling that he must have been an unbearable prig that he is sort of this hero but I, I suspect that he was not the sort of person that uh, you would spend time with but I may be wrong it's sort of why I steer clear of historical fiction to a certain extent because people put a personality on somebody that then you know, you, you, you kind of associate, you know, the, the worst example is the way that Lady Margaret Beaufort has been portrayed in, in some novels, you know, when she was nothing like the, the kind of obsessive person, I think, that you that you sometimes see. So I'd like to just 
sort of get a love to know what what people were like I, I get the idea I'd like to go out for a drink for example with Edward the fourth yes that would probably yeah. be quite quite enjoyable you know in, in that way and I'd love to see Elizabeth in action Elizabeth the first I I always think that uh, that the portrayal of Elizabeth in in Blackadder was probably the nearest one to what her character was like but I just love to see you know how how she operated how she she got people to go along with her you know and 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 also a little bit of her petulance I'd love to ask her about Mary Queen of Scots and see how she reacted for example you know it would be it would be very entertaining so I you know just to to see what the the, the characters of the people were, were were like absolutely and the very last thing and I will let you get on with your day Julian is the Tudor takeaway so I ask all my guests for a takeaway so this is basically something for our listeners to go off and explore after the episode People sometimes give films, songs, book recommendations. So do you have a Tudor takeaway? Going back to Cambridge for this one. If you go into if you go into a, a, a manual college uh, chapel, so Emmanuel uh, was was founded by Walter Mildmay, who was the Chancellor of the Exchequer for Elizabeth, Elizabeth, and he was he was in the Court of Augmentations or what have you. Founded this chapel, and he got this 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 chap to uh, come and be the first master. And um, his name was Lawrence Chatterton. And if you go into Emmanuel College, you walk over his gravestone to go into the. The chapel but stop and look at the at the gravestone because it says the age at which he died and he died he connect remained connected with the, with the college from its foundation in 1584 to his death in 1640 and it says on the tombstone he died at the age at the age of 103 wow so just a, a remarkable person that that lived through the whole the whole age you know and uh, i often think you know you look at gravestones people could live to ripe old ages if you get got through childhood so that is my takeaway. <laughs> that is extraordinary. What a long life. That's that time. Yeah. Yes, that's yeah. incredible. Well, Julian, thank you so much for making the time to come onto the podcast and talk tutors with us. It's been such a wonderful chat. Thank you. Nice to chat. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of Talking Tudors. Thank you so much for joining us. I absolutely love to hear from listeners, so if you have any comments or suggestions or just want to say hi, please get in touch with me via my website, www.onthetudortrail.com, where you'll also find show notes for today's episode. If you've enjoyed the show, please share the podcast with friends and family, and don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. I also invite you to join our Talking Tudors podcast group on Facebook, where you can interact with other Tudor history lovers and hear all the behind-the-scenes news. You'll also find me on Twitter. My handle is on the Tudor Trail and on Instagram as the most happy 78. It's time now for us to re-enter the modern world. As always, I look forward to talking Tudors with you again very soon. Music